In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the stock market had one of its best days of the year. I think it was the second best day for the Dow was up 440 points, 1.8% or just under. You know, the NASDAQ was up 132 points, about the exact same percentage as the Dow, except the NASDAQ is now at an all-time record high, closed at 7,560 spot 81. That is a new record. We have taken out the high from before that 10% correction. Now, the NASDAQ is the only major index that has done that. That is not the case for the Dow, the S&P, even the Russell 2000, but the NASDAQ has taken off. Remember, I talked about this on my last podcast. People are trying to create the idea that, hey, these tariffs maybe are going to be good uh, for U.S.-based companies or maybe some of our technology companies. I don't know how people are trying to spin this thing, but there's a lot of optimism uh, about uh, the sector of the economy that people believe will be not affected by the tariffs. And so maybe you have a narrower set of stocks that everybody wants to pile into. And so those stocks are disproportionately in the in the NASDAQ. But the catalyst today was the perfect uh, jobs report, non-farm payroll report that came out today. And, you know, if I was a conspiratorial uh, person, which I'm not, you know, you would really say, that wait a minute, I mean, this looks too good to be true. This is just what the doctor ordered when it comes to a jobs report. Because remember, 
Last time we had the jobs report, even though the jobs number itself was weaker than expected, the markets were spooked by the bigger jump in wages. In fact, a lot of people thought that 2.9% year-over-year growth in wages, and I think on the month number it was maybe up 0.3, that that was really the catalyst for the the big sell-off that we had. So, in fact, that was the number that everybody was really looking for, not maybe the headline number, but the wage number. People wanted to make sure, hey, are wages really growing? You know, Trump, of course, every time he talks, he talks about this enormous growth in wages that is really not taking place, although the president talks about a lot of things that aren't happening and claims credit for them. But the market was worried that we might get a bigger boost in wages, which would mean, oh, inflation is coming, which, hey, maybe the Fed is going to have to raise rates four times instead of three times. But, you know, yesterday the president was talking, I watched his his speech, and I'll get to that later when he talked about the tariffs. But one of the things he said about these government statistics, and specifically he was talking about the jobs numbers and the unemployment numbers, he referred to the statistics as being beautiful, right? Because everything was perfect. We had record low numbers, you know, African-American unemployment was down and uh, unemployment rate the lowest in I don't know how many years. And he said, these statistics are beautiful. That is his new word to describe the government employment statistics. Well, he had different words to describe those identical statistics when he was a candidate. And beautiful wasn't among them. The words that he used as a candidate when describing the government jobs numbers was phony, fake, fraud, a joke, fiction, a hoax, right? Those were the the adjectives he used when he was a candidate. Now he says the, the numbers are beautiful. Well, which is it, right? I mean, because either the numbers were good under Obama and he was lying to get elected and now he's telling the truth or... He was telling the truth about Obama and he's lying now, right? Because it can't be both, right? You can't take a look at these government statistics and say they were fake, they were frauds, they were a joke, they were a hoax, they were fiction, they were phony when Obama was president. But now those same statistics are beautiful when you're president. But we got beautiful numbers today. I didn't see any tweets from the president referencing the jobs numbers, but I'm sure there were people talking about them. But we got... 313,000 non-farm payroll jobs created way above the 205,000 that had been estimated. In fact, the prior number, the 200,000 number from January, they revised that up to 239. So big numbers all around. The unemployment rate stayed the same at 4.1. People thought that would drop to 4%. But there's actually some good news in this report, or more good news, Because the reason the unemployment rate didn't go down is because something like a million people entered the labor force. I mean, a huge jump. The labor force participation rate jumped up from 62.7 to 63. I think we created something like six or 700,000 full-time jobs, 300,000 part-time jobs. Lots of jobs created. Um, You know, even in manufacturing, we got 31,000 jobs. Uh, We revised Last month's number up from 15,000 to 25,000. I mean, pretty much everything about this report uh, was stronger than expected. I mean, normally I, I, I find ways of poking holes in the jobs numbers. 
But this one was a solid report as far as relative to expectations, across the board gains in employment, people, uh, you know, added to the labor force. Now, of course, we had these one-off numbers under Obama. There were plenty of job reports that came out under Obama that were, you know, aberrations, that were kind of like, you know, all of a sudden we got a really strong report and people would get uh, very excited about that. And I think this is another one of those things. It's an outlier. It is a very strong report. But I don't think it is the beginning of some new trend where we're going to continue to repeat uh, these numbers. But the silver lining, the one thing that almost makes you suspicious that the fix is in is the average hourly earnings number up just 0.1%. And they actually revised last month's 0.3. I think they revised that lower. Actually, no, they didn't revise that lower. They revised the year over year number lower. The year over year number was initially... 2.9. That was what scared everybody. They lowered it to 2.8. But now with the 0.1% increase in February, the year over year number now for gains in wages is down to 2.6%. So this is again, just what the doctor ordered. We got a lot of jobs being created so people can pretend that the recovery is going on. But how convenient the average hourly earnings growth was anemic. So now people are a little bit less worried about the Fed taking the punch bowl away, although the bond market did decline today in reaction to the stronger than expected number, but nothing big. I mean, the yield on the 30-year first, I'm looking at it, 3.16. I mean, again, we haven't broken out to new highs. The 10-year, which got above 2.9 intraday, I think we got to 2.914. We closed at 2.894, so the yield's up a little bit, but we haven't really broken out. So this was like your Goldilocks, your perfect number. And the stock market rejoiced as a result of this number. But, you know, as all this was going on and all this optimism about the U.S. economy, the Atlanta Fed came out and revised down their estimate for Q1 GDP down to 2.5%. Now, this is the lowest estimate it's been. Remember, they got down to 26 about a week and a half ago. And then all of a sudden they shot back up to 3.5 for who knows what reason. Well, now they're all the way back down to 2.5. This is a 54% reduction uh, from the 5.4% that everybody was excited about when they first came out with it back in January. 2.5. And the number is likely going to keep falling. I mean, I think that we're going to end up with GDP in Q1 with a one handle, right? We're going to be below 2%. In fact, the numbers that came out today that were likely the catalyst for this was the the wholesale trade numbers that came out. We saw a big collapse in in sales. It was, I think, the biggest drop in, in two years. Inventories did shoot up a little bit because nobody bought anything. And so that still might help out. Uh, Q1 GDP, even though the the Atlanta Fed revised it down. But I think that bodes ill uh, for the second quarter. And, you know, this is a a big decline that was completely unexpected. I mean, you know, if everything is so great, look, how did we create all these jobs? How did a million people come into the labor force and wages barely moved? I mean, what was it that enticed all these workers to to all of a sudden want to work? I mean, because wages didn't go up. And how were employers able to bring all these guys off the bench if they didn't have to entice them uh, with higher wages? So, you know, there are a lot of reasons to look 
at this jobs number and decide that it's an outlier because a lot of the other statistics that are coming out just don't make sense uh, when you look at these numbers. And again, you know, we got the weaker than expected or the bigger than expected trade deficit. I talked about that. That's what caused them to go down the last time because they revised down the Atlanta Fed, took their number down on Wednesday also when they got those bigger than expected trade deficits. So you got the rising trade deficits, you got falling wholesale sales, you got this outlier of a jobs number that has excited the markets. Uh, but, you know, the markets have a lot of things that they should be worrying about and they're not. And, you know, stocks were not the only thing up today. Oil jumped almost $2 a barrel. We closed back above 62, 62.04. We held on to 60 very well. I mean, to me, we've really broken out in the price of oil. We're up $1.92 today. And in fact, we got more bullish news that came out late in the day when it comes to oil because we got the Baker Hughes rig count, which went down. Pretty big drop overall from 1283, our rigs down to 1257. Uh, U.S. rig count um, went up slightly. So the big drop was in, in Canada. Uh, but still, that's less production uh, of oil, which would bode well for future increases in the price of oil. Hey, by the way, speaking of Canada, so Trump announced yesterday the tariffs on steel and aluminum. It will be the 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. But as I speculated, those were the rumors on Wednesday, Canada and Mexico are exempt at least for now, because, of course, Trump reserves the right to subject Canada and Mexico to those uh, tariffs, you know, if, if, they, if he feels like it. But for now, they apparently have dodged a bullet, but a lot of other countries are going to have to deal with these tariffs and potentially a whole lot more. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting about Trump's speech yesterday when he talked about the tariffs is that he was evoking a lot of Republican presidents of the past who had imposed tariffs. And basically what he was saying is, look, this is a very Republican thing to do. And Republicans uh, recently have not lived up to their tradition of protecting the worker and protecting American jobs. And so I am going to go back to the roots of the Republican Party and I am going to do what Republican presidents have successfully done in the past. Uh, we're going to have these tariffs. And a lot of people that may not know their history uh, may buy into this. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, this the Republicans. Oh, they were the party of tariffs. Right. So this is good. We need to have these tariffs. Well, you know, political parties have changed a lot over the years. And if you look at the Republican Party, you know, let's say after the Civil War, during the period of Reconstruction, throughout uh, the period, you know, the populist movement in the late 19th century, all the way through, let's say, uh, Roosevelt and the Great Depression, right? Look at the Republican Party uh, versus the, the Democratic Party. Because obviously, too, you know, before the Civil War, the Republican Party was, you know, the anti-slavery party and the Democrat Party was still pro-slavery. I mean, you had, you know, a lot of these Southern Democrats. And, you know, today, you know, you know, a lot of people forget the fact that it was the Republicans that were, uh, you know, wanting to abolish slavery. But once slavery was abolished, and that was no longer the big political issue uh, that was separating the two parties, you did have this tariffs 
where you did have Republicans that were very much in favor of tariffs, and you had the Democrats who were, were against them. But if you look at the overall picture of the Democrat and the Republican Party of those at time period, personally, I would have been a Democrat because the Democratic Party was the party of small government. The Democratic Party was the party of the common man, of the people, of the individual. The Republican Party, because of its advocacy for tariffs, was considered to be the party of big business, the party of big government, right? Big government was going to protect big business with tariffs. But the the voters knew that tariffs did not benefit workers. They did not benefit consumers. They benefited the profits of the larger companies. And so that's why the Republican Party was seen as the party of business and the party of big government. And the Democratic Party was you know, the libertarian type party, the the free market, the government stays out, the government is small, the individual reigns supreme. We don't want tariffs. We want free markets. That's what the Democratic Party used to be like. So what Trump is actually saying when he's saying, hey, I'm a traditional Republican, I want to go back to tariffs, is he's saying that he wants to be a big government Republican. He wants to be a Republican that is in favor of of using the power of government to help corporations charge U.S. customers higher prices for their products. The Democrats, when they were opposed to tariffs, were seen as the the, the party of the people, right? The worker, the common man. The worker wasn't dumb enough back then to think that tariffs benefited him. No, they knew that tariffs were benefiting business. And and that is the reality. So when Trump is trying to say, hey, I'm like an old school Republican, he's saying I'm like a big government Republican. Because the Democratic Party, up until Roosevelt, the Democratic Party was a much better party. right? I would have voted Grover Cleveland, one of my favorite presidents. Very few people talk about Grover Cleveland. He has the distinction of being... Uh, the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms, right? He was president, then somebody else was president, then he was president again. But he was a great president. He was a Democrat. And, you know, one of the his famous quotes had to do with when he was, you know, he um, refused to support uh, some legislation uh, that had to do with a natural disaster, and he didn't want to appropriate federal funds for victims of a natural disaster. And he said, while it's true that the people must support the government, the government must never support the people. Can you imagine a a Democrat talking like that today, saying that the government should not be supporting the people? I mean, that's all the Democrats are about today, is the government supporting the people, right? It's, It's this for free and that for free. The government gives away everything. The Democratic Party wasn't like that. Roosevelt kind of changed that. After Roosevelt, the Democratic Party became the party of big government and free stuff. But before that, that wasn't the case. And in fact, if you go back, and I've talked about this before with the the imposition of the income tax, the income tax was supported by uh, Democrats because it was going to replace the tariffs that they didn't like, right? It was going to soak the rich and it was going to get rid of all the tariffs that were hurting average people, right? That was where the support came for the income tax. It was because we can get rid of tariffs. And workers, average people were in favor of that because they they thought that they were not going to pay the income tax because that was just for the Carnegies and 
and the Rockefellers, right, and the Vanderbilts. But the average person knew that they were paying tariffs. And so they wanted to get rid of the tariffs and they wanted to tax the rich. But now you have Trump talking about tariffs as if these tariffs are going to help the average guy, as if tariffs are going to help workers. They're not going to help workers because workers are consumers. Workers have to buy the products that are now subject to the tariffs. Uh, but, you know, it was a whole like revisionist history that, that Trump was uh, was talking about. But of course, you know, most people have no idea what happened. They don't understand the roots or the evolution of the political parties. They just think everything has always been right. The, the Democrats have always been the party of a uh, big government and the, the party of the worker and the poor and the downtrodden. Right. And the Republicans have always been uh, just for big business. That's not that's not the case. And, you know, what made people think that the Republican Party was for big business was because they were for tariffs. I mean, that was the big thing. Oh, you guys are you know, you just want to protect the profits of business. The Democrats are against these tariffs. They, they want free markets. They want free trade because that keeps prices down and that benefits the average guy. Anyway, also, another thing I wanted to point out, I was looking at the uh, Fed balance sheet. The Fed balance sheet comes out every Thursday. You want to check these numbers. And the balance sheet actually spiked up by about $4.5 trillion. I mean, all of a sudden, it looked like, hey, maybe they're actually shrinking their balance sheet. And now it's right back up where they started. I mean, there's no real evidence, despite the fact that they keep talking about this. The balance sheet hasn't gone anywhere. There's been no shrinkage at all. Now, again, maybe they're never going to do it. I mean, I don't see how they could possibly shrink the balance sheet. I mean, the fact that the markets aren't already imploding more than they have, the fact that the bond market hasn't already gotten down more than it has. I mean, to me, that shows that there are a lot of other people who, despite what the Fed is saying, don't believe that they're actually going to shrink that balance sheet. Because if that were going to be the case, how could long bonds still be as low as they are? It doesn't make any sense. But of course, the gold market is not trading as if anybody thinks that the Fed is not going to shrink its balance sheet. I mean, gold prices, again, very, very flat today. I mean, minimal movement in the price of gold, even after the big jobs number came out. I mean, the most gold was down was four or five bucks, and it closed up, I think, a buck and a half. We're at 13.23. But even though you saw, you know, commodities in general strong today, oil strong, minimal move in gold, silver up about 11 cents, very small. Again, it's all this optimism, all this enthusiasm. Everybody thinks everything is great. I mean, this jobs report was manna from heaven as far as the markets are concerned. It was perfect, right? We got all this job growth. We didn't get the wage growth, even as President Trump is taking credit for all this wage growth to try to support the idea that his policies are working. Meanwhile, the tariffs are there. The fact that Canada and Mexico are exempt is a bigger plus for Canada and Mexico than it is for the United States. American consumers and businesses are still going to be paying higher prices uh, for uh, steel and aluminum. And who knows what? Who knows what other tariffs are on the way? Right. The other problems that are building in the economy are going to continue. Uh, consumers continuing to be weighed down by debt. The nation is being weighed down by debt, both the, the trade deficits and the budget deficits. Uh, so this is a ticking time bomb. You know, I have no idea you know, how much longer or how long the fuse is on this bomb. Right? Nobody knows. We've got plenty of warning signs. This volatility. Look, these huge moves up. Look, we get big moves up. We get big moves down. Right? The market is reacting Wild swings based on any kind of data that comes out. 
right? This is not a, a normal, healthy market. To me, this is a market that is really trying to figure out where it wants to go. And to me, given the fact that we're so expensive and the risks are so great, you know, I don't care that the NASDAQ made a new high, you know. You know, the other markets didn't make a new high. And does that mean they can't make a new high? No, doesn't mean they can't. But the emerging markets to me, the foreign stocks, to the extent that the U.S. market does manage to shrug this off one more time, and if we do make new highs, I think that uh, the foreign markets are going up higher. The emerging markets are going to go up more. The strength there is, 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 is it's, you can't argue. If you look at some of these charts, look at the, the, the commodity charts, look at the emerging market charts. I mean, things look like they're getting ready to really break out. I mean, the moves that I see coming there, to the extent that the U.S. market continues to rise, these markets are going to just take off. And the dollar, which did not rally, right? You did not see a rally. We had this 440-point rally in the Dow. We had this really strong jobs number. Everybody's talking about how great everything is. And the dollar index was negative on the day. Now, it's off the lows. We're right at about 90 flat. But all we're doing is consolidating the previous losses. If you look at a chart, it just looks like the dollar is getting ready for another leg down. That leg is coming. I think the next stop in the dollar index is below 85, maybe 84. We're going to go down there. And as the dollar goes down, commodity prices, oil prices are really going to move higher. We've built this great base now at around 60. I think the next big move on the price of oil is going up to $80 a barrel. Inflation numbers are going to keep getting worse. Doesn't matter to me if the wages aren't going up. In fact, if anything, you know, everybody is so excited. Oh, we're not going to have inflation because we're not having wage growth. Look, you don't need wage growth. And in fact, if the cost of living is going up and your paycheck isn't, that's even worse. It's not like just because wages aren't going up that the price of consumer goods aren't going to go up. They are going to go up. There's no question about that. They're already going up and they're going to go up more. And and so the uh, the foreign markets are going to react to the weak dollar. That's going to be very good for the emerging markets. It's going to be very good for commodities, which help emerging markets. And then there's going to be another big move down. There's going to be some more disappointing economic data. I don't know. I said, you know, a couple of days ago on the podcast, eventually we're going to get a bad jobs report. That wasn't today. Today was a good report. But we're not going to continue to get good reports. At some point, the numbers are going to change. Obviously, the GDP, when we get the official look at GDP, and if we end up with GDP below 2% or even just barely above it, I mean, how are they going to continue uh, to uh, to support this narrative of 3 4% GDP growth? How are they going to continue to pretend that the deficits are not going to be as large as they say because we're going to grow our way out of it? Remember, the entire analysis of uh, cutting taxes and increasing government spending, the reason that the deficits are not going to completely blow out of control is because we're going to get all this extra economic growth which is going to result in much higher tax revenues coming into the government. Uh, the government's going to have to spend less, you know, on anti-poverty programs or unemployment benefits. So the, the growth is going to take care of the debt. Well, how much longer can they pretend that that's going to be the case if there is no growth? They can talk about it all they want. But if we end up getting these GDP numbers and we're getting low twos or high ones, how are they going to keep this fantasy going? You know, even I think... Uh, uh, one of the Fed governors came out today, Evans, I think he was um, from uh, the, 
Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He came out and said, you know, maybe we'll only do two rate hikes this year. Nobody really paid attention to it. You know, everybody's worried about whether there's going to be three or four. And all of a sudden, some guy says, maybe we'll only have two. I mean, obviously, maybe that's part of the reason that the market rallied today because the Fed threw that bone there. But it didn't have any impact on gold. It didn't have much impact on the dollar. I mean, the dollar was initially stronger on the day. The knee-jerk reaction was, oh, by the dollar, it was a stronger-than-expected jobs report. But by the end of the day, the dollar was down because all rallies seem to be sold because the dollar is clearly trending down. Gold, I mean, gold's going up, but it's going up very, very slowly. But again, the fact that gold is going up so slowly, to me, just indicates how clueless everybody is at the extent of the problem, right? The only mainstream guy that seems to, you know, get it is Jeff Gundelak. I mean, again, I hate to necessarily call him mainstream because I think he's, you know, he, he takes offense if I say he's mainstream. But, but he's mainstream in the sense that the mainstream respects him. They actually care what he has to say. They actually, you know, quote him, right? They, they, they completely ignore me, but they actually pay attention to, to, to this guy. And he's, you know, by and large says the same thing I'm saying. Maybe he doesn't come out and say it as apocalyptically and as bloom and doomy as I do, but he's basically saying inflation is going higher, the dollar is going lower, commodities are going higher, the U.S. stock market is going to go down, emerging markets are looking great. I mean, pretty much the same thesis. He's come to the same exact investment uh, conclusions as me. Right? He's looking at the same data, and so he, he can see this. Where, what about everybody else? Where, where's the rest of Wall Street? Why can't other you know, managers who are, you know, managing the type of money that he's managing, why can't they see it? I mean, to me, it's as clear as the nose on, on my, on, you know, my face. I, I can see these problems, but, you know, I go back and I, I look back to the period leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. It was the same thing. Same thing. I was like, how come nobody can see this? I mean, come on, look what they're doing in the real estate market. Look at these liar loans. Look at these zero down. Look at what's happening to real estate prices. I mean, can't anyone see this is the most obvious crisis I've ever seen? Why is everybody oblivious? And even after the subprime market imploded, people were like, oh, don't worry about it. It's contained. I'm like, how can you believe this is contained? Right? I mean, but people believed it. And here we are, deja vu. We're living through the same exact thing. I mean, the only guy now, again, other than Gundelok, I see him or from time to time. But on television, the only person that comes on and he's on mainly, I guess, Fox News, is um, David Stockman. I mean, that's it. They have, now, they have David Stockman on a lot, right? And, you know, so he, I mean, he is maybe like the new Dr. Doom. He's like, maybe he's the new Peter Schiff. Um, but I think one of the reasons that uh, Fox likes to have David Stockman is that he's not from the investment world. He's a political commentator. I mean, he was, you know, in the Wagon White House. He was a budget director, so he's coming at this thing not trying to give investment advice, although he talks about the stock market all the time and how it's going to crash. And I think, you know, the main difference between what I say and, and what David Stockman is saying is David thinks the Fed is going to shrink its balance sheet. He thinks the Fed is going to keep raising rates. And he thinks that this is going to implode the stock market, implode the bond market. I mean, the only difference, really, between me and him is that I don't believe the Fed is going to go through with it. Now, of course, maybe he's right. I mean, I didn't first, I didn't even think they were going to taper. And then, then they tapered. And I didn't even think they were going to raise rates. And they raised rates because, you know, I underestimated 
the Fed, I thought they were they understood how big this bubble was and they didn't want to take a chance on popping it. But, you know, they've taken some risks. They've gone out on the limb. Now, they haven't actually shrunk the balance sheet yet. David Stockman thinks they're going to do it. Now, maybe they will, you know. But, you know, to me, I don't think, I mean, I think they got to say uncle. And even if they try to shrink it, I don't think they get much, much shrinkage out of it before they got to give it up. Because I don't think it's possible. And I don't think they're going to follow through with all these rate hikes. The reason I'm not as bearish on the stock market as David Stockman is I think the Fed's going to cut rates. I think they're going to do QE4. Now, he says they're going to do it. He believes they're going to do it, too. He just thinks before they do it, they're going to follow through. They're going to create a complete implosion. They're going to keep raising rates. They're going to shrink the balance sheet until all hell breaks loose. Everything is going to implode. And then they're going to do QE4. My bet is they're going to do QE4 before we get to that point, that they're not going to let everything completely implode and then try to come to the rescue like they did in 2008. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Stockman's right. Uh, But from what I'm looking at, I would bet my money on the Fed uh, taking a preemptive uh, move to try to prevent that from happening. And what is going to surprise everybody, including the Fed, is going to be the reaction. Because I think when we have to go back to QE4, when we have to go back to rate cuts, we're not going to get a big boom in the stock market, a big boom in the bond market, a boom in the housing market. We may get a knee-jerk spike. But what that's going to cause is an implosion of the dollar, which will ultimately cause a collapse in the bond market. It will backfire on the Fed. It will send interest rates up. Inflation will spike. It is the overdose. The next round of stimulus is not going to stimulate anything. It is going to be the overdose that I've been talking about. We are going to die of an overdose of stimulus because the amount that would be required, the amount of cheap money, what they're going to have to do to try to prevent this thing from imploding is going to be such a lethal dose of all this cheap money that it's going to be toxic and it's going to destroy the dollar and ultimately destroy the economy and Trump's chances of getting reelected, of any Republicans' chance of getting elected in 2020, if I'm right, and it hits the fan before the 2020 elections.